Well, when you think of a European vacation, you probably envision floating down a Venice canal or maybe strolling through a museum in London or even sipping coffee in a Paris cafe. But when Paul arrived in Europe, he had but one thought on his mind, and that was to lead the lost masses to faith in Jesus. At the time, Europe was drowning in a sea of idolatry and paganism, and on its way to hell, Paul came to Europe with the gospel burning on his heart. Acts chapter 10 records a huge breakthrough. Remember, Paul was in Joppa when he saw a vision. It resulted in the gospel being preached directly to Gentiles. Another breakthrough occurs in Acts chapter 16. Paul was in Troas when again he saw a vision. This time a man from Macedonia, an Eastern European, calling for his help. Paul sails the Aegean, and the gospel moves from Asia to Europe. The first Christians were Africans and Asians. Now Europeans begin to join the family of God. And over the next 1,800 years, Europe will be the hub of Christian activity. For a 1,000 years, Rome was headquarters until seeds of Reformation began to sprout everywhere. For a time, Wittenberg and Zurich and Geneva were cities on a hill. By the 19th century, England was the center of the modern missionary movement. But it all began in 50 A.D., when Paul blazed the trail onto European soil to share the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, he embarks, he goes to Philippi. Now in Acts chapter 17, he's back on the road again. Verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. In one sentence, Paul travels 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. The Greek city of Thessalonica was founded around 300 B.C. It was named after the sister of Alexander the Great. It was a busy city. It was a commercial center. There was a famous Roman road, the Via Ignatia, that ran across the Balkan Peninsula, connecting Europe with Asia. The trade route ran right through the city of Thessalonica. It formed its main street. Paul figured that if the gospel caught on in Thessalonica, it would spread throughout Macedonia and all of Greece. Well, he came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. In Romans chapter 11, Paul called himself the apostle to the Gentiles, but we remember it was his custom to always visit the Jews first. And so here he visits the synagogue. He's there three weeks in a row, and he reasons with them from the Scriptures. Paul went on explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Remember, Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Jewish rabbis read in the Old Testament that the Messiah was to suffer and he was to reign. And yet they had a perplexing, a confusing time reconciling both scenarios in the same person. That's why some rabbis suggested there were two messiahs. There was Messiah ben Joseph, 
or the son of Joseph, who would suffer as did his namesake in Egypt. Whereas Messiah ben David, or the son of David, would reign over Israel as her king. Well, Paul explained from the scriptures that there was only one Messiah, that both prophecies were fulfilled in a single person, Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, he suffered on the cross, but he rose to glory and will come again to rule the nations. He is the Messiah who both suffers and reigns. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious. Notice the Jews didn't oppose Paul on theological grounds. They were just jealous. They were jealous of his popularity. You know, today Judaism has for the most part lost its missionary zeal. Jews have a live and let live type of attitude. But in the first century, the Jews of the diaspora or those of the of the dispersion, those who lived in Gentile lands were eagerly involved in trying to convert their Gentile neighbors to Judaism. To jealous Jews, Paul's persuasiveness was an unwelcome competition. These Jews were against him simply because they were jealous of his popularity. And so they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. These jealous Jews hired thugs to inflame a mob and to storm the house that Paul occupied. But when they did not find them, good thing Paul wasn't at home, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. Paul wasn't at home, so they just took whoever was there. Can you imagine Jason? He's a longtime resident of Thessalonica. He's minding his own business, probably watching the Braves game one night. When all of a sudden a mob storms his house, busts down his front door, and drags him through the streets to the city hall. And notice the mob was crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And this was one of the biggest compliments, greatest compliments Paul ever received. Notice here his critics, his staunchest enemies, they have to admit that Paul had turned the whole world upside down for Jesus' sake. Hey, if you haven't noticed lately, this world is wrong side up. The world that we live in calls good evil and evil good. It mocks the Savior and worships sin. People draw their breath from God, then deny He exists. This world is wrong side up. That's why it once again needs to be turned topsy-turvy. Today, we need to shake things up for Jesus' sake. Rather than blend in, we need to live out our faith. Well, in verse 7, the mob makes its accusations to the authorities. They say, Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They accuse the Christians of political treason against the Caesar in Rome. And yet they misunderstood Christianity's claims. Jesus was king, but he was king over a spiritual, not a physical and political kingdom. 
The only coup d'etat that Christianity orchestrated was a takeover of the heart. Well, they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Jason and his friends were released on bail. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Paul got out of town under the cover of darkness. He and his entourage traveled another 60 miles west of Thessalonica to a small town called Berea. Well, When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And notice what's said of these Bereans. It's important. These were more fair-minded. In other words, they were more objective in their thinking than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. The people of Berea should be commended and held up as an example. The Bereans were into truth. They wanted the truth, even if it made them squirm, even if it challenged their preconceived beliefs. Their question wasn't, do I like what I'm hearing? Does this sound cool? Do the words of this man make me feel good? How's this going to benefit me? Is this what my former church taught? No, no, those weren't their considerations at all. The only question the Bereans were concerned about was, is this biblical? Is this according to the Scriptures? And we too need to be Bereans. Check out all teaching. Is it true to the Word of God? That's the plumb line. You see, even well-meaning pastors make mistakes. You need to check out what's taught regardless of who it is that's teaching. Yes, a pastor has a responsibility to be accurate, but it goes both ways. You also have the responsibility to examine what the pastor teaches. Is it biblical? If I'm in error, you're in danger. We both have a responsibility. Well, the Bereans, they were more noble-minded. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. The Jews, back up the road in Thessalonica, they were a militant bunch. It wasn't enough that they'd kick Paul out of town, they hunted him down. You could say these Jews were like underwear. They kept creeping up on Paul. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Evidently, Paul was the flashpoint. Get Paul out of town, and now Silas and Timothy can quietly continue to work teaching and discipling the new believers. And so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Seems the plan was for Paul to lay low for a few days until his pals had caught up to him. But there's no such thing as laying low for Paul. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Athens, Greece, was perhaps the most famous city of the ancient world. 
It was spectacular culturally and intellectually and architecturally. Athens was home to the Olympic Games, to the Acropolis, to the colossal Parthenon. Athens was the birthplace of democracy and Greek philosophy. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, as well as a host of other wise guys, originated theories in Athens. At the time of Paul's visit, Athens was starting to get eclipsed by other prominent cities. Rome had become the military capital of the world. Alexandria in Egypt was the scientific and literary capital. Corinth, also in Greece, was the commercial hub. But Athens remained the intellectual and academic capital of the world. And I'm sure Paul concluded rather quickly the same thing that I thought after dealing with a couple of my college professors. How can people so smart be so dumb? For as he looked around at this beautiful city, renowned for its brilliance, he noticed that Athens was littered with countless temples and altars and idols. Greek archaeologists estimate there were over 3,000 shrines in the ancient city of Athens. They were dedicated to various gods of the Greek pantheon. There were more idols in Athens than in all of Greece combined. There was a saying in antiquity, in Athens, it's easier to find a god than a man. Verse 17, therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. As was his custom, Paul went first to the Jews, but he wasn't content just to share the gospel in the synagogue, in the house of worship. No, the apostle went into the agora, or into the local and secular marketplace. And this is what we should be doing in our world today. We need to take God's word into the marketplace of ideas. We need to invade education and business and entertainment and politics. Paul certainly didn't sit on his hands while people were dying and going to hell. That's for sure. He went to where the people were. Reminds me of D.L. Moody. One day he was walking the street. A man was moving in the opposite direction when Mr. Moody asked him, Are you a Christian? The old grump snarled, Mind your own business. That's when Moody replied, Sir, this is my business. And it's our business too. Your friends, your neighbors, their eternal destiny is your business. We should never get used to the sound of footsteps marching off to hell. Though Paul's plan was to take a few days for R&R, he was exposed to the paganism around him and it stirred his heart. He had to say something about what was in front of him. He had to confront the idolatry that he saw. Verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? The Greek word translated babbler means seed picker. It was a derogatory term, no doubt. It was an insult. It referred to a bum who picked his food out of the trash. In essence, the Athenian philosophers were mocking Paul. They were referring to the gospel as garbage. Yet others said... He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus in the resurrection. Notice 
Paul's message, his core message was the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, he'll write to the Corinthians and he'll talk about preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. American politics is a two-party system. We have Republicans and we have Democrats. Judaism was also a two-party religion. Pharisees were the conservatives and the Sadducees were the liberals. But Greek philosophy also had two parties, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were the materialists. They were the humanists. Their leader, Epicurus, lived from 341 to 270 B.C. He taught that the universe was shaped by chance and that man lacked an eternal soul. Death was our end. To the Epicurean, all that mattered was matter. His goal was to enjoy the here and now. Epicureans lived to maximize pleasure and minimize pain in this life, for there was no other life. They could have borrowed from Jesus' Jesus' parable when the rich man stated his philosophy. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's how the Epicureans thought. On the other hand, the Stoics were the New Agers. They were the pantheists. Their leader was a man named Zeno, who lived around the same time as Epicurus. Zeno believed that God was in everything and that everything is part of God. That sounds familiar. Kind of the Oprah religion. Zeno taught that life itself was the spark of God in the spirit of man. The Stoics felt that fate and nature controlled circumstances. They believed what will be, will be. Rather than shape life, the Stoics' goal was to live in harmony with his surroundings and accept the hand that he was dealt. The Stoics were the disciplined and austere and the solemn people. Emotion was their enemy. Obviously, they lived a futile, unhappy life. They were victims of their circumstances. It's no surprise that the first two Stoic leaders committed suicide. Well, Warren Wearsby sums up Paul's task here in Athens. The Epicureans said, enjoy life. The Stoics said, endure life. But it remained for Paul to explain how all men can enter into life through faith in God's risen Son. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The word can be translated. Air is rock. The Romans called the place Mars Hill. It was an outcropping of rock west of the Acropolis, where the Supreme Council of Athens, the leading philosophers of the day, met to examine religious and philosophical matters. And it was there that Paul was questioned, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Makes me think of Athens, Georgia. In Athens, Georgia, football is king. Football is the talk of the town. But in Athens, Greece, the most popular sport was philosophy. The big men on campus We're in the philosophy department and on the debate team. 
the Athenians tailgated before a big lecture. Well, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Athens had thousands of idols, but just in case one had been forgotten or there was a God that they had missed, rather than offend him, they built him an altar. It proves the paranoia produced by polytheism. Interestingly, the architects in Athens built altars to a pantheon of gods, but the philosophers in Athens were largely agnostic. Plato once said, It is hard to investigate and to find the framer and the father of the universe. And if one did find him, it would be impossible to express him in terms which all could understand. Yet the intellectuals acknowledged the necessity of a prime mover, a universal first cause. And yet they viewed him as aloof and distant and impossible to know. And this left a huge vacuum in the Greek soul. Paul is drawing on their hunger for the one true God, for the God that they've missed. He uses the altar to the unknown God to proclaim the true God. Verse 23, Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, this unknown God, Him I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And I'm sure he turned and he motioned to what they could see just above them. For right above Mars Hill was the Parthenon, a massive temple to the goddess Athena. It still stands today. And yet Paul says the real God needs no temple. Heaven and earth is his temple. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. This unknown God that you've been serving, the real God, is self-existent. He's in need of nada. It's foolish to think that the true God is dependent on human hands. He's the creator and the giver of all of life. And here Paul makes a very contemporary argument. Life doesn't evolve by chance. There is a creator. Philosopher G.K. Chesterton once said, Evolutionists seem to know everything about the missing link except the fact that it's missing. The theory behind evolution is that given enough time, fish will turn into frogs and frogs into birds and birds into monkeys and eventually monkeys into humans. But if this were true, you would expect to find a fossil record littered with transitional forms like half fish and hybrid humans. But the missing links are all missing. I once heard a lady say, besides, if evolution really worked, if we really adapted and evolved upwards, by now moms would have three arms. Don't buy into the idea that this perfectly ordered universe rose out of chance and chaos. Perfect design requires a designer. It's obvious to the unbiased mind that as the Apostle Paul put it, God made the world, 
and everything in it. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God created humans with unity and with diversity. Humans are one blood. You and I are all one blood. But we've been grouped in nations and given boundaries. People all over the world are one blood. But God has ordained borders and boundaries and nations. You see, the big downfall of the global village concept, the one world idea, a world without borders, is that it's not biblical. Paul here tells the Athenians that God created people groups and he marked out the boundaries of their dwellings. In essence, God is in favor of walls. You can't point to the Bible for proof of unbridled immigration. Did you know borders are biblical? Borders are of God. In fact, in Genesis 10, God lays out a table of nations. Remember at the Tower of Babel, all mankind came together under one ruler. And guess what God did? He broke up the party. He scattered us into nations and people groups. In the future, the Antichrist will rise to power on the back of a global government. Nations and boundaries and people groups are God's idea and are needed, apparently, in a fallen world. It's not real popular in saying it these days, but we're all one blood. And yet, God has appointed times and the boundaries of people's dwellings. You know, the only truth that can bring people together is that of a common creator. One God made us. Thus we all seek that same God, Paul says, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they may grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. We're restless until we find the God who made us. We're all groping, we're all searching, whether we know it or not, for the God who made us. And He's not far from any one of us. You know, it's interesting, Epicurus taught that God is distant and He's unattainable. But here Paul quotes one of Athens' most famous philosophers, a man named Epimenides, who wrote, For in him we live and move and have our being. God is not far from all of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. In other words, God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. God is not just infinitely high, but he is also intimately nigh. The true God wants us to know him. And he's ready to reveal himself to the searching heart. Paul continues, As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And here Paul quotes the Greek philosopher Aratus. You know, Paul does what pastors do today. He, he relates to his audience. He draws on cultural references at the time to emphasize biblical truths. Aratus acknowledged that we all have a common creator. Paul explains, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art 
and man's devising. You know, the real God is not an idol. When Paul calls us the offspring of God, note he's not teaching universal salvation here. He's not suggesting that we're all born again. He's simply saying that our Creator, that from our Creator, we all derive our lives from God. We're His offspring. We, have, we get life from God, from the same source, from God. Paul here is using reverse logic. He's saying since we're made in God's image, then we can get an idea of what God is like by looking at us. You and I, we're living, and we're personal, and we're knowable. And thus God is living and personal and knowable. I am more than a chunk of metal or stone. I've been called blockhead on occasion, but I'm alive. And so is the God who made me. He too is alive and personal and knowable. He's no idol, Paul is saying. And he starts into his conclusion in verse 30. For truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. What a provocative statement. The Greeks were proud of their history. They talked longingly of the golden age of Pericles, when Greek civilization had reached its pinnacle. You know, even today we still marvel at Greek culture. Yet Paul called the hallowed history of the Greeks times of ignorance. The Greeks were unenlightened by the truth of God. They didn't know God. When it came to what mattered, most Greeks were ignorant. Paul says the time to debate is over. It's now time to decide. Paul, God is calling all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. On this day, the city of Athens was judging Paul. But Paul says one day God will judge Athens and all men in righteousness and in judgment. And in resurrecting Jesus, God was ordaining him as Lord and judge of all the earth. We're told in verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You know, it's been said, an agnostic is a person who says that he knows nothing about God, and when you agree with him, he becomes angry. People get mad at Paul because he told them the truth. And then they scoffed at him, they mocked at him. While others said, we will hear you again on this matter. The notion of Jesus' resurrection had stunned the Athenians. The idea of a resurrection was so far from their thinking. that they, they needed to reconsider. They needed to give this some time. They wanted to think this through. See, the Greeks considered the human body to be evil, to be the prison of the soul. According to Greek thought, when the body died, the soul was set free from its fleshly cage to fly back into the oblivion from where it came. The idea of, of the body actually being resurrected discombobulated the Greeks, and it halted Paul's message. Some of the Athenians taunted Paul. Some of them tarried. 
And some took Paul up on the offer of eternal life, for we're told. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, this was not the response that Paul usually experienced when he went to a town. There were just a few converts in Athens. Dionysius was a council member, an Areopagite. He was a leading philosopher. He came to Christ that day. Paul's other convert, or the other one that's mentioned by name, was Damaris, which was a female. And since proper Greek ladies seldom entered the male arena of Mars Hill, some people think that Damaris had to have been a prostitute. It's interesting that the two named converts here in Athens were a philosopher and a prostitute. Just proves that God saves both the down and out and the up and out. Chapter 18. And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. The city of Corinth was a port with access to both the Adriatic and the Aegean seas. This meant that all north to south traffic passed through Corinth. The city was called the Bridge of Greece. Corinth was the first century's leading commercial center. Ancient Corinth had a population of 200,000 people. But Corinth was notorious for its unbridled evil. Every vice known to man had a home in Corinth. Whenever a Corinthian was shown in a Greek play, he played the drunk. In fact, to play the Corinthian meant to party hardy. A Corinthian girl was a prostitute. You remember in Romans chapter 1, Paul describes the moral and spiritual deterioration of a civilization that had divorced itself from God. Well, when he wrote Romans chapter 1, he was living in Corinth. The evil city of Corinth was his inspiration. On top of the mountain, just above Corinth, was a temple dedicated to the Greek fertility goddess Aphrodite. And each night, a thousand temple priestesses would flood the streets of Corinth and play the prostitute in the name of Aphrodite. Corinth was the Las Vegas. It was the Bourbon Street of its day. It was a cesspool of immorality, lewdness, perversion. And yet it turned out to be fertile ground for the gospel. Verse 2, And Paul found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. The Roman historian Suetonius dated the Jewish expulsion from Rome at 49 A.D. It was the result of riots, according to Suetonius, caused by a man named Christus. It's possible that the gospel had made its way to Rome by this time. And it was the preaching of Jesus as Christus or the Christ that caused the upheaval that Suetonius mentioned. At this time, Aquila and Priscilla had also moved to Corinth. They connected with Paul. And so because Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. It's interesting, Paul was bivocational throughout his ministry. 
He was a pastor who supported himself with a secular job. You know, in their yeshivas, Jewish rabbis not only received theological training, they also learned a trade. Paul's skill was making tents. And in Corinth, he happened upon a couple of other tent makers who also were believers. And so he connected with his husband and wife team, Aquila and Priscilla. Monday through Friday, Paul was in the shop. But on Saturdays, he was in the synagogue. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Paul was compelled by the Spirit and he was encouraged by his friends. That's the one-two punch God often uses. Paul's two pals, Silas and Timothy, had finally caught up to him, and their fellowship emboldened his witness. This is why Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Don't underestimate the influence, the important influence of Christian friends. We also know that Silas and Timothy arrived with some financial support from the Philippians. It probably gave Paul a break from his tent making so he could devote more of his energy to the ministry. Whatever it was, through the compelling of the Holy Spirit and the encouragement of his friends, some fresh wind fills Paul's sails. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And this is how Paul always handled opposition. Rather than get shook up, he'd shake off. And he'd just move on to those who were ready to hear. And this is so important for us to learn. Don't get hung up on the few people who won't hear when there are people right around the corner who are more than interested in what you have to share. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. (laughs) Paul set up shop right next door to the competition. Then Crispus... The ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. This was a major breakthrough in Corinth. The synagogue leader was converted to Jesus. How cool is that? Verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. And do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. It seems at Corinth, Paul's courage seemed to wane. He'd been beaten and run out of every town that he had visited except Athens. When Crispus was converted, he knew the Jews would grow desperate and resort to more violence. But God fortifies Paul with two vitamins. He gets two vitamins. Take these two vitamins, God tells him. His presence and His promises. And these are two vitamins that God uses to keep us strong and to keep us healthy. His presence, how powerful that is, and His promises. God is with us and He makes promises to us. One count says that there are over 7,400 promises in the Scriptures. I suggest you claim a couple for yourself. Notice, too, God tells Paul, I have many people in this city. 
This is an amazing statement, considering Paul is just starting his ministry in Corinth. And the city was known for its wickedness, no less. God had many people in Corinth. See, at the time, they just didn't know they were God's people yet. What an incentive it was for Paul to share his faith. Did you know that God has many of his own people in your neighborhood? God would say to your office, you're complaining about that. I'm the only Christian at the office. God would say, no, I have many people in in your office. I have many people on your team. They just don't know they're my people yet. God has them already picked out. He's ordained them prior to the foundation of the world. God calls them his own. He's just waiting on you to share the gospel with them. Well, verse 11, and Paul continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. For 18 months, Paul was faithful to teach the Bible, and this church grew. This is how all churches grow, through the teaching of God's word. Later, Paul will write of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He says, for you see your calling, brethren that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Perhaps Paul was comparing his success in Corinth with the lackluster results he had seen in Athens. The mighty Athenians, the wise And noble Athenians had laughed off the gospel while it had been embraced by the lowly Corinthians. The men of Athens were too proud to admit their need, whereas the sinful Corinthians jumped at the opportunity to know God and to be forgiven. God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. Verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, that is, the Bema seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Apparently, a new proconsul gave the Corinthian Jews hope that they might persuade the Romans to outlaw Christianity. But their plan backfires. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. He recognized that This wasn't a civil matter. This was a matter of their own religion and told them they should take it up on their own. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. That was Crispus's successor. Remember, the former synagogue leader was converted and beat him before the judgment seat. You know, (laughs) they thought they would be able to convict Paul instead It's Sosthenes that takes the beating. But Gallio took no notice of these things. In other words, Gallio pretended not to see. He was kind of happy that Jewish leader got a beating. He deserved it. Here's a photo of the actual judgment seat or the Bema seat in Corinth where Sosthenes was flogged. 
Evidently, the Jews in Corinth had few friends in town. And when the locals saw the indifference of their new ruler, they decided to teach the Jews a lesson. And so they roughed up Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler. He was tied to that post right in front of the Bema seat. And this makes 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, such an intriguing verse. Are you ready for it? Paul called to be an apostle. And what? And Sosthenes, our brother. Apparently, after getting beat up by the pagans in Corinth, Sosthenes also put his faith in Jesus. It took a beating to convince him to follow Christ, but he did. Which is what it takes for a lot of stubborn people. Have you noticed this? Maybe not a physical beating, but you have to get beat up financially or vocationally or relationally before you humble yourself and realize your need for Jesus. It takes a bruise or two for some people to follow him. Perhaps Sosthenes was converted after his beating. Maybe it was when Paul and Crispus came to minister to him. He had wanted them beaten. Instead, they're now loving him and forgiving and washing and bandaging his wounds. It was no doubt love that melted Sosthenes' hard heart. This is so cool. The synagogue can't keep a rabbi because they're all getting saved. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, that is Antioch. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. That's odd at first. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But again, he was always trying to win the Jews to Jesus too. And here he takes a Jewish vow in hopes of creating a platform to be able to speak to the Jews. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. That is, he left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, and I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the most important cities that Paul would ever visit. It was in the heart of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Its population was 300,000 people. Paul was in a hurry at the time, and he wanted to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. His ministry in Ephesus would have to wait for his third missionary journey. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. It had been two years since he and Silas had left. I'm sure the believers in Antioch were overjoyed to see them again. But no grass was growing under Paul's feet. In short order, he set out again. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And this begins Paul's third missionary journey. Verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, he was an African, he was from North Africa, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. Paul leaves Ephesus. Apollos comes to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was a Christian. 
And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos knew the gospel, and he knew the need for repentance, but he didn't yet possess the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He knew how to turn from sin and how to turn to Jesus, but he didn't know how to turn on the power of the Holy Spirit. That was his problem. Apollos was eloquent in his speech. He was knowledgeable of God's Word, but he lacked spiritual power. There's so many preachers like that today. They can string together the words. They're so articulate and so fluent. They lack what's most important, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. Like many Christians today, his experience with God wasn't inaccurate, nor was it insincere. It was just incomplete. And I like how Aquila and Priscilla handle the situation. They don't confront him. They don't call him out publicly and embarrass him. They don't say something that puts him on the defensive. They just pull him aside. As I said Sunday, they probably took him to Longhorns, bought him a steak. Hey, we just need to talk a little more. They take him to lunch. They tell him what he's missing, and I'm sure they prayed with him before they left that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Achaia was the region around Corinth. Here an apostolic apostolic transfer occurs. Apollos goes from Ephesus to Corinth, while Paul goes from Corinth to Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. In Ephesus, it was reversed. Apollos planted, and Paul watered. And the point is, is that sometimes we sow the seed, other times we plant the seeds of the gospel that other people have sowed. At times we water the seeds that someone else planted, But always the seeds sprout into faith as a result of the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. It is God who supplies the increase, and thus it is God who gets the glory. And there we have Acts.